0: Thank you for having me, and thank you all for coming out here. Uh, yeah, in case I haven't been around as much uh, on campus in the past couple of years, uh, so in case I see some unfamiliar faces out there, I am Christopher Shannon. I teach in the history department here at Christendom. Uh, I just want to say up front, I'm I'm not a papal expert. I'm proud to be part of this Pope-a-thon here, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, as Father mentioned, my uh, my specialty is really in you know, 20th century intellectual and cultural history, and that's kind of how I'm going to approach. Uh, John the XXIII uh, tonight. It, it was, I think it's, it's often too easy to see uh, popes or any church figures simply as church figures. Uh, but both of the popes being canonized uh, this weekend, John the 23rd and John Paul II, are you know, as significant as they are within the church. They're really significant within world history, 20th century world history, and I'd say especially um, 20th century uh, intellectual history. Maybe we're more likely to think of uh, intellectual history with respect to John Paul, not so much with John the 2030 as this image of being, you know, the, the jovial Italian peasant and stuff. But he was a very learned man, and though he didn't uh, kind of produce a kind of great tomes in the way that John Paul did, he did produce uh, a, a tremendous and significant change in attitude, a kind of a mental shift, if you will, uh, within the Church. And without this mental shift, this intellectual shift, we wouldn't have had uh, figures like John Paul. The second. Um, so, okay, let's look by way of introduction, here, um, uh, as you all know, again, this is a we're celebrating two canonizations, uh, John Paul the Second and John the Twenty-third, and it's kind of interesting. Uh, John Paul the Second is already being called by some great John Paul uh, the Great, uh, where John Paul the Great Student Center, whereas John the Twenty-third was known in his lifetime as Good, only Good. So we've got Good and Great, but what's you know, John Paul the Great is, uh, to be fair, somewhat unofficial and used only by the, the truly dedicated, um, uh, who liken him to other great popes of the past, like Leo the Great and Gregory the Great. That's going back quite some time. Now, the term good, I don't believe, is canonical. Uh, Father Flandt, here's a canon lawyer. Uh, it's not canonical, uh, but it was applied much more widely and generally to John the Twenty-Third during his lifetime. Uh, People across the political and theological spectrum referred to John the 23rd as il buono papa, or the Good Pope. And what's this good, great stuff going on here? John Paul II is considered great uh, by many uh, for seeming to rescue the Church from the pit of destruction, uh, taking heroic public stands against dissent and heresy in theology and communism in politics. In this, he seems very much indeed in the mold of someone like Leo the Great who corrected the various Christological heresies of his day, that day being the 5th century, uh, with his teaching on Christ at the Council of Chalcedon, uh, yet also saved Rome from destruction by Attila the Hun. So John Paul, like Leo, has this kind of theological and political side to him. Ironically, uh, you know, looking ahead to the canonizations this week, and uh, some who praise John Paul II's greatness uh, might see John the Twenty-Third's goodness as in part responsible for bringing the Church to uh, the brink of destruction, as it will, and somehow John Paul II, saving us from what John the Twenty-Third gave us, elected Pope in 1958. It is John the Twenty-Third who, after all, convened the Second Vatican Council, and a certain kind of, to a certain kind of Catholic, uh, this Council, or at least the reception of the Council. Uh, is at the root of all the problems in the church today. And because of this, John XXIII, I think, suffers from a kind of guilt by association. Uh, he, re- he remains the darling of uh, liberals who see him as endorsing their vision of the church, uh, only to have it squashed, this vision squashed by reactionary, his reactionary successors such as Paul VI, John, the, uh, John Paul II, and Benedict. Now, the point of my talk uh, tonight is not to defend him as a conservative, uh, but to defend him as good, liberal or conservative, progressive or traditionalist, these labels, which are as much political as theological, I think, uh, only distort our understanding of John the uh, Twenty-third, as they often, so often, distort our understanding of Catholicism. And maybe we should start to identify less with these labels, and strive instead to be good Catholics, good in the way that John the Twenty-third was good get a sense of what it means to be good in this way, I think we need look no further than our current Pope Francis I think there's uh, we can see perhaps something providential that he should be the Pope to canonize John the twenty third the shift in papal image so commented on uh, in the media the shift from Benedict to Francis has, I think, its nearest historical parallel in the shift from Pius XII to John XXIII, though I'd have to say I think the contrast between Benedict and Francis has been way overdone by the media. Not so much the contrast between Pius XII and John XXIII. That's pretty short. Just look at the pictures, you know, <laughs> versus, uh, you know. Uh, uh, in, in both of these uh, transitions, these shifts, though I think... Um, in any ways, the change is more one of style than substance, but style really does matter, uh, particularly if you're concerned with evangelization. What good is it to hold fast to universal truth if you can't effectively communicate it to the people of the place and time in which you live? This is the question, uh, the historical question, that John Twenty-Third asked uh, as he promulgated Vatican II. In the four centuries since the the Council of Trent, the Church put so much energy into defending itself against the assaults of modernity that it seemed to many to have lost the ability to communicate the beauty and truth of Christ to the modern world. This question of communicating timeless truth uh, in time is a question that Catholics cannot avoid and still be Catholics, for it is a question raised by the incarnation itself, which is nothing less than timeless truth entering time. Well, speaking of the incarnation, let's turn to the incarnation of John the Twenty-Third, or at least his birth. Um, Angelo Giuseppe Roncalli uh, was born on November twenty-fifth, in eighteen eighty-one. He was actually uh, kind of misbaptized, uh, Giovanni Giuseppe instead of um, uh, Angelo Giuseppe. Or uh, so, that's how it was recorded in his Paris register, and this is, I think, uh, somewhat revealing of uh, where he was baptized. Uh, the poor bookkeeping by the local parish priest reflects uh, the general kind of uh, poverty uh, of his upbringing. He was born in the small village of Sota il Monte, uh, translated under the mountains in the foothills of the Alps in kind of northern Lombardy. So he is of hardy peasant stock, just like he's kind of always identified with pub- publicly. I'd like to think that some of his goodness, that is, his humor, his easygoing, uh, open personality, uh, came from his humble peasant origins. He always looked back fondly on these peasant roots, uh, even when he was moving in uh, the kind of high flying circles of world leaders. Uh, so he kind of looked back fondly on his peasant background, but still, he had no illusions about the supposed joys of peasant life, that he was no victim of nostalgia for uh, kind of his, the simple rural past. Um, commenting on his peasant background after being elected Pope in 1958, uh, he said, there are three ways of ruining oneself, women, gambling, and farming. <laughs> My father chose the most boring, which is saying his father was a farmer. Uh, he came from a family of sharecroppers. And I was thinking of sharecroppers as you know, kind of Depression-era America or something, but they were, in effect, sharecroppers in Italy as well. Uh, they were so poor that they rarely uh, even had bread to eat, and actually a lot like American sharecroppers tended to live uh, on cornmeal, which in Italian is polenta, and that tastes pretty good to me. I don't know. It's, the Italians can make great food even out of cornmeal. Uh, but so very, very poor uh, background. He was poor materially, but his family had roots. His family had been in Sota El Monte since the 15th century. Uh, and very little had changed in that village since then. And that's the kind of traditionalism, that rootedness in place for which no amount of theology. Can provide a substitute, and the kind of the theology is his kind of deepest, greatest theological education when he was young was simply living uh, that life of rootedness in place, rootedness in the faith in his rural uh, upbringing. Uh, life was organized around the cycles of the agricultural year but for for many many centuries the church had kind of baptized that agricultural cycle with the liturgical calendar of the church and i think one of the great challenges for people trying to live with tradition today is that break you know we still have our liturgical calendar but the rest of our lives are structured by industrialism uh you know 24 7 365 type of mentality that, that makes it very hard to kind of sustain uh, tradition as a whole way of life. But that's the kind of world that John the Twenty-Third grew up in. And it's a world that he loved. Uh, he wasn't in flight from it at all. But by the late 19th century, uh, when uh, Angelo was growing up, even in this uh, tiny village that time forgot, as it were, Uh, There were um, signs of modernity, and uh, the most kind of telling sign of modernity anywhere is the school. That is, even these these peasant children, uh, farm children, were at least at an early age um, pretty much made to go to school by the kind of developing Italian nation-state. Young Angelo proved uh, especially adept at his studies, Uh, And this kind of academic uh, ability combined with his personal piety uh, led him to be, uh, kind of put him on the path toward the priesthood, and he uh, entered Junior Seminary in 1892. Uh, It was in Junior Seminary in uh, the city of Bergamo um, where he first learned to be good. Uh, And again, uh, I use good here in the sense of il buono papa, uh, good in the sense of learning an openness to the world, an openness to the world that puts charity first. Again, he learned this in the the junior seminary at Bergamo. Uh, Bergamo, compared to Soto El Monte was uh, was the big city. I mean, it's think of imagine if the closest thing I can. Uh, compare it to is if you grew up in Front Royal and you were you know, sent to Junior Seminary in New York City or something, not that Bergamo was that big of a city, but again there is that culture shock, something not a bit, Winchester. not Winchester, oh no, no, uh, so just a, a dramatic, even more of a dramatic uh, break than Front Royal to Winchester. Uh, it was uh, urbane, sophisticated, and cultured uh, in that big city way, yet it was also full of vice and poverty. So some of, some of the shock is a little like I mean, many of you have um, read Augustine's Confessions and when he goes from Tagast to Carthage, this kind of seeding cauldron of lust. Um, but uh, Angelo didn't have those challenges facing him. The, what really kind of shocked him... Um, was uh, the tremendous poverty that he saw. And urban poverty and rural poverty are different things. This is what uh, um, some call urban poverty, they call it kind of destitution. It's like there's there's material deprivation, but there's no kind of compensating cultural roots or cultural supports to to kind of offset that. So that's what uh, Angelo encountered in Bergamo. Uh, but he also encountered a new generation of priests at this junior seminary who were uh, committed to doing something about it. Uh, And these priests in the 1890s uh, were very much inspired by Leo XIII's encyclical Rerum Novarum, which is generally considered the first social encyclical uh, in which Leo addressed the problems of industrial capitalism and encouraged uh, Catholics to become part of the solution, uh, if you you would. And the priests who ran the Junior Seminary of Pergamma were kind of inspired by that, so they really kind of reached out to the poor and the workers in the city, setting up soup kitchens, uh, yes, kind of doing charity work, but also, again, in the spirit of Rerum Novarum, fighting for the rights of workers, particularly the right to unionize, which was the kind of great breakthrough of Rerum Novarum, you know, Leo always distinguished between, you know, kind of socialist or communist unions and uh, non-communist unions, but he insisted that the workers had a right to organize at a time when most capitalists certainly did not uh, agree with that. And Rerum Novarum, this kind of social outreach, was the church's first real effort at constructive engagement with modernity. I, mean, I think sometimes, again, in the... General history is like, oh, and Vatican, with Vatican II, we finally, the church finally opens up. But that opening up began a good seventy years or so before with *Rerum Novarum*, and uh, John or you know, Angelo was, you could say, at the ground floor of that and experienced this this first kind of opening up of the church to the world in uh, in Bergamo. And this is a lesson that he would never forget. Now, after his years at Junior Seminary, and he seminary was finally ordained to the priesthood in 1904, uh, but he continued uh, the kind of the social work, if you will, the social outreach inspired by Rerum Novarum under the tutelage of the Bishop of Bergamo, uh, uh, Giacomo Maria uh, Radini Tedeschi, uh, who really became his kind of mentor, his kind of mentor and model of his early years. And what he learned from Radini Tadeshi beyond the specific issues uh, related to Rerum Novarum was what he learned how to change within the boundaries of tradition. And I think that's often, again, in, in recent years and with the whole fallout from Vatican II, those two things are set against each other. There's tradition, which is timeless and never changes, and then there's change, and change is always a corruption. Uh, that's not the Catholic way of approaching history. And uh, Angelo learned this in a very practical way under the mentorship of Radinia Tadeshi, this, this ability to change within tradition. What is tradition? What are the boundaries of tradition? What changes within tradition and what changes against tradition? Well, these, these lines are often very blurry and the judgments about what's legitimate change and what's illegitimate can often change with, say, papacies. What one pope thinks is okay, another might have problems with. Um, In 1903, uh, we have a new pope. Uh, Leo XIII dies, and he's succeeded by Pius X. Pius X withdrew papal support for a lot of these social initiatives that Leo XIII had encouraged. And this put uh, the, the work of... Angelo and Radinia Tedeschi, uh, somewhat in danger, because many business leaders in Bergamo had complained to the new pope that their work uh, on behalf of the workers was uh, was illegitimate somewhere was you know kind of uh, dangerous to the church. Uh, Pius had had often kind of sided with critics of uh, these kind of uh, this social work in other areas, but uh, he did in this particular case defer. To Radini Tedeschi's authority as local bishop, and said, You know, well, I don't know. I'm not going to judge on this matter. You know, you're know, you the bishop. You decide. Uh, so, in some sense, Radini Tedeschi and uh, Roncalli were spared, but the general climate of, of uh, attitudes toward these initiatives, this kind of openness to the world, was changing under Pius X. And there was a general sense that Pius X was pulling back a bit from some of the initiatives of. Um, of Leo XIII. Uh, this uh, this pulling back, if you will, was most clear uh, in 1907 with uh, Pius's uh, encyclical, Pascendi Domenici Gregis, in which he condemned theological modernism. And that's a whole can of worms that I don't want to get into too much. But just, again, for, for the talk I'm giving you tonight, what's significant about the condemnation of modernism or significant about modernism is that One of the main aspects of modernist theology was its engagement with history, particularly the historical critical reading of the Bible. And so in these debates about theological modernism, you have in many ways these uh, two things set against each other, the timeless truth of the church versus historical change, and Pius's fear that openness to historical change meant openness to what a later pope would call the tyranny of relativism and what uh, Roncalli and Radini Tedeschi were trying to do, even through their kind of social work, was um, try to realize or embody an openness to change that was within tradition, so that the change need not mean relativism. These are, can be very you know, fine lines to draw, uh, and a lot of how they get drawn depends upon uh, historical circumstances and especially kind of local historical circumstances. Uh, neither Redini Tadeshi or Roncalli, uh were modernists, um, but they, f- they felt as if they were being accused of it uh, and At the time, in the early 20th century, it seemed as if almost any humanist effort to engage the non Catholic world could lead to accusations of modernism. Roncalli, uh, in addition to the kind of social work of bogamo was uh, was teaching in the seminary at this time, and he felt these restrictions very sharply. He felt that there were just certain things that he couldn't, things that he would want to say, but that he couldn't say because for fear that he would be accused of being modernist. And this was particularly difficult for him because one of his uh, favorite subjects was history. And, you know, church history could certainly still be taught, well, this pope did this, this pope did this, but church history is a kind of chronology. Any church history that would acknowledge real change In the church, you know that could get you accused of modernism. So, again, he he felt the uh, uh, the pressure uh, of of this kind of crackdown on modernism. And I think another thing that made him perceived as good later is that when he becomes pope, he lightens up on this. Again, largely because of his own personal experiences, he. Um, starting in the late 1950s and going into uh, the Second Vatican Council, of course, he gave a little more flexibility and leeway for theologians uh, to think, particularly to think about history. Um, many of the, the theologians that were had been silent, if not condemned, at least silenced uh, under Pius XII in the 1950s reappear at Vatican II as advisors. And that's largely because of work of John the Twenty-Third, and again, because his own personal experiences with this kind of crackdown on modernism. Uh, so that second good, if you will, um, is the, a kind of an openness uh, to thought, particularly kind of historical thinking. Uh, the third thing that made uh, John the Twenty-Third good was his ecumenism. You want to talk about that now An ecumenism that isn't just, again, like so much with Roncalli, is not theoretical. It's very practical that it comes out of his actual uh, life and career within the church. Um, After these, uh, again, these problems in Bergamo, though Roncalli managed to avoid outright accusations of modernism, he knew he had to kind of redirect his energies. Um, certainly uh, redirect them away from any kind of controversial issues. Um, World War I intervened to redirect him. In, in one way, he was uh, drafted. It's actually the second time that he had been drafted uh, into the Italian Army. Uh, he served uh, in the trenches in World War I. Bergamo, actually, uh, because of its location, was kind of the major medical center uh, in Italy. So it was, it was really like the the big wartime hospital can we say the MASH unit of of the Italian army. Uh, And uh, Roncalli served as kind of a chaplain to to the soldiers there. He'd done such good work during uh, the war that uh, the Bishop of Bergamo, uh, after the war, asked him to stay, to remain, and to set up a youth hostel so he could ministry to students, uh, which uh, he, he accepted that and kind of ran a youth hostel. He also directed uh, several uh, kind of Catholic action women's groups and helped organize the first post-war Eucharistic Congress in Bergamo in 1920. And he was successful at all of these uh, activities, and again, activities that were kind of certainly very far from the controversies of modernism. Um, His success in these activities led uh, the reigning pope, then Benedict XV, to pick uh, Roncalli as uh, head of the new Propaganda Fide. And the Propaganda Fide was uh, a missionary society that had originally started in France and there were kind of national uh, branches of it if you will. Under Benedict they become centralized in Rome and he picks Roncalli to be uh, to be the head of this new kind of centralized Propaganda Fide. Once again he's very successful uh, at these practical tasks. He starts a magazine uh, to inform contributors of uh, you know, kind of where their money is going and the success of the efforts of Propaganda Fide, uh, and this in turn kind of greatly increased uh, the fundraising uh, success of the Propaganda Fide. And during his short time there, his few years, he doubled the fundraising efforts. So that always again uh, uh, makes you look very good in the eyes of the church. Uh, but for all of that success, he's somewhat mysteriously, by 1925, gets reassigned to the diplomatic corps. And one might wonder, promotion or punishment? I mean, he'd done great work with the propaganda feeding. What's the problem? Well, if you want to to decide whether it's promotion or punishment, let's consider where he gets assigned. Bulgaria. Uh, Hardly a plum position in the diplomatic corps. There's hardly any Catholics in Bulgaria. Uh, so, not exactly a promotion. Uh, what's what could he possibly be punished for? Well, a couple of things. Uh, he spoke out against Mussolini uh, in in the 1920s, uh, at a time when the Church was trying to play nice with Mussolini, try to find some kind of modus vivendi. So that didn't set very well with some with some people in the Church. But, and this is something that he found out later. Apparently, as I suggested from uh, events in his life earlier, apparently he had been tagged a modernist. And he discovered this later when he went through... I didn't know they had... The popes have personnel files. <laughs> so, just a second, honey. I'll get, yeah, okay, here it is. What's, what's the name, Roncalli? The Popes have personnel files, and he looked through it, and there was notes in there like, watch out for this one. He's a modernist. So... It's, you know, I think it's safe to assume that the, the assignment to Bulgaria was somewhat of an exile. Let's get this guy out of here. Let's get him our him. We don't want his type around here. It was so it was a bit of a punishment, but you know, as God can always bring good out of evil. It was a kind of providential punishment, I think, uh, because it really it put him on the forefront of ecumenism. Now, again, uh, in another person assigned to Bulgaria might just have you know, kind of played out their time there and not made much of an effort. But he said, okay, I'm I'm an ambassador to this country that has hardly any Catholics. I better learn how to get along with non-Catholics. And he won the hearts of the largely Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox uh, Bulgarians, again, not through any particular teaching, uh, but simply through his good nature. Good nature and charity work, something, again, that he's very familiar with. And there's one particular uh, event. There was, during his time in Bulgaria, there was a, a major earthquake. And he used Vatican money to set up what were called the Pope's soup kitchens. Um, and he kind of labored tirelessly in service to the poor and even kind of sleeping in tents while he was uh, serving them. Um, so he's in Bulgaria for about nine years or so. Um, in 1934, uh, he gets uh, named a papal delegate to Turkey and Greece. Now, no offense to any Bulgarians here, but that's, I think that's a bit of a step up, <laughs> if you will. The food's better. Um, but again, Turkey and Greece are not Catholic countries. These are not places where you're going you're to put your real movers and shakers. Uh, in Turkey at the time, uh, the problem uh, was less that it was uh, uh, overwhelmingly uh, Muslim um, then that it was experience a radical it was experienced a radical secularization under Atatürk, uh, and so that's what he had to deal with in Turkey. At one point, Atatürk, who wanted to kind of secularize Turkey into the modern age, uh, he passed laws forbidding public religious garb. Now, this isn't direct, this wasn't directed primarily at Catholic uh, priests or, or bishops, as Rankali was at this point, uh, but primarily directed at Muslims. He didn't want Muslims. No, 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 that's, that's the old Turkey. We want a new modern Turkey. We don't want people walking around uh, with you know, looking like uh, old-style Muslims. But uh, Catholic priests and, and bishops fell under that law as well. But here is, I think, Roncalli's response to this was kind of representative of his general attitude toward these things. He says, "What does it matter whether we wear the soutane or trousers as long as we proclaim the word of God? You know so he wasn 't going uh, to' going to fight this uh, at all and just kind a of very kind of relaxed attitude that he took and not just relaxed attitude but he knew where his priorities were you know again what does it matter what you're dressed like as long as you 're proclaiming the Word of God um, and it is in proclaiming the Word of God where he uh, engaged in some what were at the time very controversial liturgical experiments for example he uh, read the gospel and preached in Turkish uh, which wasn't done at that time in Latin didn't solve all the language problems uh, in the church when he was in Bulgaria the Bulgarians up to that time had been uh, uh, ministered to Bulgarian Catholics had been ministered to by French missionaries who any, anything that was in the vernacular uh, with respect to the liturgy or the religious life it all had to be in French and he said other Bulgarians, can we speak, you know, these non-Latin parts, can we speak in Bulgarian? And so, too, in, in Turkey. Uh, he preached the gospel in Turkish. He even added uh, Turkish words to the divine praises at mass, and I'm, well, I don't think anyone here knows Turkish, so I won't sound too, <laughs> it's, uh, Tanrei, uh Mubarak uh, Olsson, and it's blessed be God, but, you know, the divine praises, but he would, you know, say that in, uh, in Turkish. Uh, now some people, even there, and uh, maybe this the, <laughs> pastoralism can be a two-edged sword, I mean, some people, some of the people in the congregation were offended by that. Uh, so, some Catholics left and complained to Rome, but for, uh, for Roncalli, this was part of kind of reaching out, maybe an early example of enculturation, but again, within the limits of tradition. He wasn't calling for a vernacular mass, the Latin parts of the, last re- uh, the mass remained in Latin, but the vernacular parts of the Mass, he said, well, let's have it in the actual vernacular of, of, the, of the people that I'm ministering to. Um, similarly, uh, with respect to his relations to Greece, uh, when he did travel in Greece, he made it a point to visit uh, Orthodox shrines and monasteries and kind of pay his respects to those, uh, uh, to those you know, Orthodox institutions, again, in a very ecumenical way. So he really was in his practical life, you know, not really theoretical, but in his practical life, a leader in ecumenism. Uh, and uh, after, I guess really it's almost about tw- 20 years of uh, being ecumenical in the backwaters uh, of, uh, of Europe and uh, Eurasia, he finally got what has to be the primo assignment <laughs> in all Vatican diplomatic corps. Paris, France. Yes, oh, got bad news for you, Angelo. You're going to have to go to Paris. Uh, he is. Uh, he was named in 1944 nuncio uh, to Paris, papal nuncio to Paris. Significantly, here, um, though he got this plum position, he was not the first choice. Um, the first, uh, the, the first choice that uh, Pius XII wanted. Uh, had actually been tainted. He was rejected by De Gaulle. This is 1944, so World War uh, II is still going on, but France has been liberated. Uh, De Gaulle is there, and they're trying to establish uh, good relations with what they are assuming will be the new, uh, the new France. Uh, but the Pius XII's first bishop was tainted by his relationship uh, with Vichy. That is, he was the. Um, uh, Vichy was the kind of German sponsored French government during uh, the occupation years. Uh, and for de Gaulle, anyone who would have anything to do with Vichy was a traitor. So he wanted no bishops, I mean, he wanted all the bishops kind of removed that had, uh, that had cooperated with uh, Vichy. Uh, the second choice, uh, Pius XII's second choice, was just too, uh, too ill to accept the appointment. And in typical self-effacing humor uh, Roncalli said, commenting on his third choice, him being the third choice, he said, when the horses break down they trot out a donkey. Um, but, uh, but he had uh, he had a lot going for him in being assigned to France, first of all. He spoke French, which helps. But also, even though Bulgaria and Paris seemed like you couldn't get two more dissimilar uh, areas, his experience in Bulgaria and uh, Turkey and Greece gave him experience in mixed settings. And France in 1944 was a very mixed setting. You think, oh, you know, Catholic country, Uh, no way. Uh, France at that time was very deeply divided among many different groups, only one of which was Catholic. In dealing with this new France, even under de Gaulle, who was again, himself a Catholic, though again very critical of uh, many bishops in France, in the, the, whatever new government would be formed in France was going to be made up of not just Catholics but old-style secular republicans from the 19th century who wanted nothing to do with the church, uh, socialists who were kind of newer-style secular republicans, and, and communists. Uh, communists who were very powerful in France at the time because they were very powerful in the resistance. Uh, and actually, communists and Catholics had worked together in the resistance in France during World War II. Uh, but you know, coming out of, of that experience, communists said, hey, you know, we've earned a right to have a say in the new France. So uh, you know, Roncalli was not uh, sympathetic to communism as, as an ideology, but he knew how to work with people that he didn't agree with on. Uh, and so that he really was though he was the third choice in many ways he was the best choice uh, for the job at the time uh, anyone who worked with him or knew him at that time uh, later acknowledged that he was a tremendous stabilizing force again not because he came in with the, the blueprint for solving you know for reconciling all these differences but just because of his gentle open presence Uh, and because of the great dinner parties that he threw. (laughs) And there's no uh, underestimating the importance of that. And again, he was was a gracious host uh, and actually did gain some converts among these these various groups that he was dealing with. Um, His final, so uh, this this ecumenical stage, if you will, ended uh, after a short time in France. He was named uh, after the war to be a Vatican Vatican observer at uh, the early meetings of UNESCO. UNESCO is the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization. Uh, These days probably known mostly for its promotion of (laughs) birth control and various noxious uh, population policies. But even then, the, the church recognized, even though it generally supported the United Nations and certainly supported the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Realized that organizations, international organizations like UNESCO, could be very dangerous. That many of them were inspired by a materialist uh, Enlightenment um, philosophy that was very much at odds with the Church. And uh, Roncalli knew this, uh, but he also realized that look, these are the kind of institutions that are shaping this post-war world. We have to know how to deal with them. We can't just say no. You're not Catholic. Uh, and In commenting on his approach uh, uh, to UNESCO, he he has a nice kind of sentence here, which I think can really uh, serve us in whatever uh, interfaith setting or ecumenical setting we find ourselves in. And he said this was his attitude to look at each other without mistrust, to come close to each other without fear, to help each other without surrender. Kind of a nice. capsule a summary of his approach to uh, to the non-catholic world. Well by 1952 these uh, uh, these kind of very impressive international achievements finally earned him a diocese. So he's been a bishop he's been a bishop ever since Bulgaria because there was this sense that like well you know if you're going to talk to bishops you're going to work with bishops you need to be a bishop yourself. So he had been a bishop but you know never really had a diocese until 1952 and then he gets what I'd say is a pretty nice appointment. In 1952, uh, on the advice of uh, Montini, later Paul VI, um, he is appointed Patriarch of Venice. And in many ways, his time in uh, Venice, his short time, about six years in Venice, brought him back to the er, the spirit of his early days at Bergamo. Um, One of the first things that he did when he went to Venice, uh, another kind of urban center with a lot of poverty and problems, is that he sold the Patriarch's summer palace. Uh, to pay, first of all, for a new seminary. And then he used uh, personal, his, his own funds, to help the poor, and very much like our current pontiff, used public transportation, which in Venice is, of course, water transportation. So that's more fun, but still, you know, again, this, this uh, attitude of you know, very you know, down to earth, not putting on airs, not um, taking advantage of the kind of privileges uh, that he could have taken advantage of as a prince of the church. Venice was, I think, by far the most prestigious position that he had held up to that point, and earlier in the century it had proved to be a stepping stone for the papacy. Uh, Pius X was Patriarch of Venice before elected to the papacy. But when Pius XII died in 1958, few, if any, thought that Roncalli was electable at all as Pope. Yet still, uh, there was no clear uh, electable person, no clear choice, and Roncalli seemed harmless. And thus, uh, on the first ballot, uh, he gained the most votes, he about 20 out of uh, 51 votes. It was a rel- relatively small conclave. Um, still, by that time, the voting procedures were you needed uh, two-thirds plus one uh, to be elected pope, and it took 10 more uh, uh, ballots for him to get that. And it, it's, at certain points in the balloting, he actually went down, and it was unprecedented for somebody to come back from kind of going down. But... On October 28, 1958, at 4.15 p.m., he is elected uh, pope and takes the name John, John XXIII. He was, for many at the time, uh, on October 28, a surprising choice, but there were more surprises in store. No sooner was he elected pope uh, than he called for an ecumenical council, and this shocked uh, many people, especially, the, high, the higher up you go in the hierarchy, the more people were shocked, not just shocked but actually kind of hostile They couldn't understand why he would do such a thing. Uh, There was no uh, particular pressing theological matter. There was was no burning heresy that needed to be clarified or corrected. There didn't seem to be any purpose for uh, this council. But John, when John explained his reasons for calling this council, he said that this council wasn't about necessarily clarifying particular points of doctrine, but it was about a more general principle that he called uh, aggiornamento. Uh, kind of an opening or an updating of the church. Now, updating is, I think, a kind of a not a good word. I mean, that sounds like new and improved. Yes, yeah, the new and improved Catholic Church. Uh, but what he meant by that, and what maybe isn't captured in, in English translations, is uh, this kind of this larger issue of that John and, and many uh, of the best thinkers of the time uh, thought that the church needed some kind of clear, comprehensive articulation of its relation to the modern world in general? Not the clarification of any particular thought, but just how are we gonna relate to this modern world that in many ways we've been at war with for, if you, if you trace modernity from the Reformation, that we've been at war with for 500 years. Can we, just, can we continue to keep fighting a war or is there a more kind of constructive way that uh, we can deal with the modern world? So what does aggiornamento mean? Uh, what did John mean by this, this openness or this updating? Uh, I think his intentions are best captured with a a quote that I'll I'll close with here, Uh, a quote from his opening address to the council. And uh, John said this, In the daily exercise of our pastoral office, we sometimes have to listen, much to our regret, to voices of persons who, though burning with zeal, are not endowed with much sense of discretion of measure. In these modern times, they can see nothing but prevarication and ruin. They say that our era, in comparison with past eras, is getting worse. And they behave as though they have learned nothing from history, which is nonetheless the great teacher of life. We feel that we must disagree with those prophets of doom who are always forecasting disaster as though the end of the world were at hand. End of quote. And I think this uh, this quote, uh, this statement, best captures the historical significance of John XXIII, which is this, His his historical significance is that he is the first modern pope to acknowledge the significance of history, the importance of history and some historical sensibility. So with this in mind, Uh, What are we to make of his legacy the last 50 years? Again, uh, there are those uh, who blame him for what's gone wrong in the church since that time. Um, There are those who praise him and uh, feel that his vision uh, has not been fully realized. But I think in keeping with his historical sensibility, one way to look at uh, the last 50 years uh, since uh, his time is to Just to think about it this way. Are things better or worse than they were before he called the council? Well, the church is always being crucified. But the church is also always being resurrected. Every historical age, even the last 50 years, is a gift from God. And we must deal with the gift that we're given. Inspired by the gifts of the past but being on guard against resentment toward God for not getting the gift that we wanted. Thank you.